Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The Need for Faith. All right, well, we've been studying the seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day uh, Turkey. And today we're going to look at the sixth letter, the letter of Jesus to the church of Philadelphia, which, by the way, by far my favorite church and my favorite letter, and you'll see why as we work our way through these verses. So let's start with the name Philadelphia. What does it mean? Well, I think you all know Philadelphia means brotherly love. And so the reason we know that is because we have a city in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, which is called the city of what? Help me out. The city of brotherly love. And so that's our modern day city of Philadelphia. But the ancient city of Philadelphia, it received its name from a king, a king who ruled over nearby Pergamum, another letter that we studied earlier. His name was Attalus II. So Attalus II's nickname was Philadelphos, which literally means brother lover. And so Attalus II was called brother lover because he had a really strong bond with his brother, the former king of Pergamum, a guy by the name of Eumenes. And so the first city of Philadelphia, AD 95, received its name, was named after Attalus II, the one who loved his brother. And so a little bit more about the city. The ancient city of Philadelphia was built on a geological fault line. And so as you study history, you know that Philadelphia experienced a lot of earthquakes in their time. In fact, in AD 17, there was a massive earthquake that hit this ancient city. And so there was um, massive damage, and for years, the city experienced all of these aftershocks. So the people were kind of, you know, uh, paranoid about earthquakes, and what do you do when the earth starts to shake? Well, we don't know in Florida, right? We have sinkholes. We don't have earthquakes, but ask somebody from California, and they'll tell you if you're in your house and it starts to shake, if you're near the front door, you'll run out so that nothing inside the house collapses upon you. We're going to see how that is going to play into the Lord's last closing comments in this letter to this faithful church. And so in Philadelphia, there was a group of believers who were absolutely awesome. I mean, these people were so faithful, the Lord did not have one negative thing to say about them. They were so faithful, the Lord did not have to correct them or rebuke them like he did the other churches. In fact, out of the seven churches, only Philadelphia and Smyrna never received any correction or rebuke from the Lord. And so this church today, the church of Philadelphia, is gonna be a model church for how we do church 2,000 years later here at Calvary PSL. So look at verse seven, and we'll jump into this letter. And to the angel... So if you remember, the word angel literally means messenger, and we determined weeks ago that the messengers of these church were the pastors, okay? And so, and to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the, what's the next two words? Holy One, 
and the, what's the next two words? True one, the holy one and the true one. Who has the key of who? That's important, please note that. Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. And so the Lord began his letter with a strong statement of who he was and what he can do. And so if you're taking notes, who is Jesus? Well, first of all, he said, I am the holy one and I am the true one. And so Jesus, this is where we always start, right? He's the center. I hope he's the Lord of your life. I hope he has first place in your life. He starts the letter out by defining who he is. That's the foundation that's laid because Christ is the only foundation, right? And so he's the holy one. What does that mean? That means he was absolutely without any sin whatsoever. I shared this with the group sometime last week. Um, we were at the southern tip of the Jordan River as it uh, flows down into the Dead Sea, which is the baptismal site of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm about to share, I shared with the team um, not too long ago that went to Israel, but several years ago, I was watching an episode of a popular TV series, and if I named the TV series, you all would know which TV series I'm talking about. And in that show, it depicted a young mom who wanted to have her infant son baptized. And so she went to a minister, and I, I use that term lightly based upon what he's gonna say, um, she went to a minister who shared his thoughts on baptism. And so the minister said to the mom, do you know what baptism is? And the mother said, quote, it, it is what gets you into heaven. Now, I hope that's a red flag for everybody, right? Baptism does not get us into heaven. By the way, baptism does not take away our original sin. It's nowhere taught in the Bible at all. And I just wonder how many people are, are thinking, man, I was baptized or sprinkled as a baby, and so therefore, I'm on my way to heaven. And they've been deceived. There's nothing in this book that says that baptism washes away original sin. Baptism doesn't wash away any sin. Hey, what alone can wash away our sins? Nothing but the what? The blood of Jesus Christ. And so baptism never happens before faith. Baptism always happens after faith. And it, by the way, is by immersion because it pictures the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of Jesus and what he did for us. It doesn't take us to heaven. Turning to Jesus Christ alone in repentance and faith, that's what takes us to heaven. Does this make sense to you guys? Okay, and so she goes, it, what, it's what gets you to heaven. The ministers then said, and I quote, well, it is said that when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the skies opened up and a dove flew down, and this told John something, that he had cleansed the man Jesus of all his sins and freed him. So John the Baptist cleansed Jesus of all his sins when Jesus went to John the Baptist for baptism? Do you guys believe that? You can imagine my reaction in my living room. Have you guys ever screamed at the television before? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, religion comes from the heart of man. True religion comes from the pages of this book, 
right? And true religion does not teach that Jesus was sinful. It's just the opposite. The Bible teaches that Jesus was completely holy and without sin. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.22, Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. John said in 1 John 3.5, you know that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 7.26, Jesus is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. And so under the old covenant, the Jews would take a lamb, a lamb that had to be spotless and unblemished, and they would sacrifice that lamb as an atonement or covering for their sin. All the millions of lambs that were sacrificed under the old covenant, all pictured one person, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was without sin, who was spotless and unblemished, who was the perfect sacrifice, and who died for you and absorbed the wrath of God for you, so you would never have to go to hell. That's the truth of the gospel. And the truth rings true in the hearts of those that belong to him. Jesus is the Holy One, and Jesus is the true one. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, so every other world religion says this, Jesus is not the only way to the Father. Every other world religion and cult says this, Jesus is not the only way to heaven. But Jesus says, I am. So what does that mean? That means that somebody is right and somebody's wrong. But in our age of political correctness, you have people who say, all religions are fine as long as you're sincere. Everybody's okay. The Muslims, the Buddhists, right? Every, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, everybody is okay as long as they're sincere. Let me ask you something. How would that mentality hold up in math class, for those of you who are students? Let's say little Johnny puts on his test. Two plus two equals four. But then little Mary goes, two plus three equals four. And the teacher gets the tests and gives Johnny an A, and she looks at Mary's wrong answer. And she says, well, I don't want to hurt Mary's feelings, so I'll give her an A. Does that even happen? I mean, maybe that does happen now in our schools. I don't know, but... <laughs> That wouldn't, I don't think, would ever happen. And so, hey, why do we change the rules for religion? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. You can't get to God through Muhammad. You can't get to God through Buddha. You can't get to God through Dalai Lama. You can't get to God in any other way except through the cross that we just sang about because the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can wash away our sins and make us acceptable to God. That's truth. And truth rings true in the hearts that belong to the Lord. And so that's who God is. That's who Jesus is. But what can he do? Look at the second part of verse seven again. He says, the words of the Holy One and the True One, 
who has the key of who? Who opens, here's what he does. He opens and no one will shut. And he shuts and no one will open. So here's your next point. Jesus sovereignly opens and shuts doors. Who is he? The holy one, the true one. What does he do? He sovereignly opens and shuts doors. Now, what key does he use to open and shut doors? The key of? The reason I keep asking you that question and wanting you to repeat it is because we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. In other words, we don't go to the scriptures and say, well, I think the key of David is this. And someone else says, well, I think it's this. Okay, you have your answer, I'll have my answer, and we'll just hold hands and walk off into the sunset. That's not how you interpret the Bible. You interpret the Bible using the Bible. And so when you see key of the house of David, it, remind, it should remind all of us of Isaiah 22. And so next to Revelation 3:7, if you don't mind marking your Bible, just write Isaiah 22, verses um, 19 through 22. And so in that passage of scripture, 700 years before Christ, King Hezekiah is sitting on the throne of Judah, and he had his, um, his primary steward or treasurer, and this guy's name was Shevna, the royal steward of Judah. And so among all his jobs, one of his jobs, Shevna was the, uh, he was in charge of the king's treasury, and he decided how revenue would be dispersed in Jerusalem and in Judea. But there was a problem. Shevna was a proud man. Shevna was full of himself. Shevna wanted to bring glory to himself. And so what did God do? He replaced Shevna with a faithful, honest, humble man, a guy by the name of Eliakim. And so you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this short passage to you. Um, but in Isaiah 22, this is what God says about Shevna, the unfaithful steward. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. Let me just stop right there for a minute. You see, what those of us in ministry have to realize is that everybody's got a choice. Every day we have a choice. And if somebody in ministry makes a choice to be dishonest or unfaithful or becomes proud or self-centered, then God will replace that person. And guess what? It doesn't matter how enormous the charisma is of that pastor, when God replaces him, the work of God goes on. God does not need us. We should be thankful and privileged that he uses us. But we've got to stay humble and honest uh, before him and faithful. And so God replaces Shevna with a man named Eliakim, or Eliakim, and it says, and I will clothe Eliakim with your robe, Shevna, and bind your sash on him, and commit your authority to his hand. And He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place, here it is, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none will open. Isaiah 22, verse 22. Does that sound familiar? 
It's exactly what Jesus just said to the church of Philadelphia. And so Eliakim replaced Shebna as the king's treasurer, and the Lord gave Eliakim the keys of the house of David. Now, what does it mean to have a key? Well, if you're taking notes, it simply means to have authority. So what are we doing? We're trying to interpret this letter using the Bible. So we rightly divide the word of truth. And so what happened was God gave Eliakim the key or the authority over the king's treasury and how it was dispersed in Jerusalem and Judea 700 years before Christ. And so when Eliakim used his key to open up the door of the treasury and disperse the king's blessings to the people, when that door was open, nobody could shut it. And when Eliakim decided to close that door and lock it and halt the king's blessings, nobody could open that door. And so Jesus told the church of Philadelphia, I have that key. I have the key of David. And so what does that mean in the context? If you're taking notes, here it, here it is. Christ has authority over the Father's treasury of blessings. Christ and Christ alone. And just like Eliakim, when Jesus Christ decides to open a door to a local church or a ministry, when Jesus decides to open a door and disperse the Father's blessings through that church or ministry to the surrounding area, wherever that church or ministry may be on planet Earth, when Jesus decides to open that door and disperse the Father's blessings, nobody can shut that door. Nobody, because he's sovereign. And when Jesus decides to whatever church or ministry, it's time to shut that door and lock it and halt the Father's blessings, we can work it up. We can dance in the aisles. We can try to do whatever we can to hype people up. But once that door is closed, nobody can open that door. And that's what Jesus does. He opens doors. And he says in verse 8 now, please look at it to this faithful church, he goes, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. That's what every pastor wants to hear right there. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Church of Philadelphia, I had the key of David. I have authority over the Father's blessings. I know your works. I know you're faithful. I've opened the door of ministry for you, Church of Philadelphia, to disperse the Father's blessings. Okay, and so what is an open door? Again, we use the scriptures to define it, but here it is. Here's the biblical definition of an open door. It's an opportunity of what? Ministry. To disperse the Father's blessings to others. You say, oh, how do you know that? I know that from a lot of scriptures, and we only have time to give you one, okay? 1 Corinthians 16, 8, and 9. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says to them, I'm gonna stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, and here's why. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul says, I'm up here in Ephesus, Church of Corinth, 
but you know, you're not gonna see me anytime soon. I'm staying up here till Pentecost. Why, Paul? Because Jesus has opened a door and his spirit is flowing. And I love it when God opens doors. So I'm staying here and I'm gonna join the work of God and disperse the Father's blessings. People are getting saved. People are getting discipled. People are growing in the faith. And I'm staying up here in Ephesus. And so in the scriptures, an open door is an opportunity of ministry to disperse the Father's blessings. That's what Jesus gave to this church. This is why I love this church. He gave this open door to the church of Philadelphia. And even though they had a lot of adversaries, he was calling them to go through that open door. And so I want you to picture this in your mind's eye, okay? Here's the church of Philadelphia, and most scholars believe it's just a small congregation in AD 95. And then here's Jesus, and he opens a door. And he says to the church of Philadelphia, I've opened the door. There's only one thing that you need. What is that? It's your next point. The church of Philadelphia needed what? Faith. To go through the door that Christ had opened for them. Faith. Jesus has opened the door. Lots of adversaries, demons and devils trying to close the door. Do you think any demon or devil can close the door that Jesus has opened? No way. And so Jesus is not gonna do all the work for us. Here's the church of Philadelphia. He says, faith. Take steps of faith. Go through the open door. Don't stay back here in fear. Don't stay back here and worry. Don't stay back here and try to figure it all out. Just go through the door. Minister, love, disperse the Father's blessings in ancient Philadelphia and abroad. And I believe the same thing that Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia is what he's saying to us today. Ladies and gentlemen, God has opened a door for Calvary PSL, have you noticed? The church continues to grow. We're getting ready to build a school um, here in the future across the street. Not only that, he's called us to do more in the world. So we're gonna support more missionaries by faith in the future. We're gonna send out people, more people. In the, we've already sent out Teddy and we've, we sent out Dave and we sent out um, Chuck and, and, and others. And so we wanna do that more and more and more in the future. Church plants, missions, Christian school, and then our own local ministry here. There's an open door. What do we need to go through that door? We need faith. And so look at what he says now in the second half of verse eight to this church. He says, I know that you have but little power. Okay, you can imagine the church of Philadelphia when they're reading this and he's talking about an open door of ministry and, and they're thinking, we're, we're not that big of a church. <laughs> and he says, I know that you have but little power or influence. And yet, and this is why I love this church, you have kept my what? Kept my word. This is why, one of the reasons why I will never start giving motivational speeches to you guys. And I will always teach verse by verse through the scriptures because we are called to keep God's word. And by the way, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. 
The Lord is saying to them, I know you have just a little bit of power and influence. I know you're just a small congregation, but that doesn't matter. Why? Because of what he just said in the beginning of verse eight. I've given you an open door. And so even though you have a little influence, if you'll just with faith walk through that door, listen to this, I will increase your influence as you disperse the Father's blessings and more and more people will come to know me as their Savior and Lord. I remember when our church had just a little bit of influence about 13 years ago. And so I was on staff at another Calvary Chapel down in Jupiter. Some of you have heard this story, some of you haven't. And I was the care pastor there, and I loved my job. Our family had a beautiful home in Jupiter Farms, quarter acre, um, a pool in the backyard, or maybe a half of acre, I can't remember, it was a beautiful house. Um, and I love my boss, Pastor Dan, who's still um, on my board of directors and still a, a great mentor to me. And so I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to stay there. I had a master's degree in counseling. I was counseling people. God was blessing. And then God called. He called us to come to Port St. Lucie and to start this church. And so I went to Pastor Dan and I said, Dan, I think God's calling me to Port St. Lucie. He gave me some of the best advice I ever got from anybody. He said, Mike, go through open doors until God shuts them. And if God doesn't shut them, keep going through open doors. Now, why is that important? Because if you don't start moving, then you're not gonna hear the voice of God. In other words, if you just sit around and pray and you're not serving the Lord, let me ask you a question you can answer out loud. Is it easier to turn a car that's moving or a car that's parked? Moving. Get moving, Mike. You think God's calling it? Start going through those open doors. And it wasn't until my wife and I made that decision to start going through open doors that the Holy Spirit made it so crystal clear, you're right in the center of my will. And we called the 30 or so people that lived in PSL driving to Jupiter. And we asked them to join us and on April 25th, 2004, we started with just a handful of people in a house. We had a little bit of influence. And by the way, I think there was 70 people the first week. The second week, I think there was like 30 because half the people were visiting to support and the second week is always a downer in church planning. 30 people. It's like, what's God gonna do with this? And the Lord, it's like the Lord saying, I know you have a little influence, but what did I just say in the beginning of verse eight? I have opened a door. Just have faith to walk through it. And so we began to trust the Lord, and what happened was we moved from a house, the house of Lee and Julie Holly, uh, to a little place we called the phone booth. You could fit about 60, but we crammed in 100, and we had one service, two services, three services. And then the Lord opened another building on a storefront on Peacock in St. Lucie West, and we outgrew that place with three services. Then we moved to a high school, and we had two services there. And then while I was at Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference in California, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, bring them all back and save your money. And we did that. I didn't know what God was doing, but guess what? Sometime after that, I get a phone call. The property that we have right now, the guy's selling it, not renting it. Come buy it if you want to. And guess what? Where God guides, he provides. And the Lord helped us to be able to purchase this property and these buildings and give it a facelift. That was two and a half years ago. And then a year and a half later, we got to buy the property across the street. 
and the Lord's calling us to build a future school. Do you see what God is doing? He's opened the door. He says, go through the door. Go through the door. Have faith. Trust me, and I'll provide. And I know some people are thinking, man, a school, you know how much that costs? That's millions of dollars. I know. But guess what? My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he owns the hills that the cattle grazes on. In fact, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns everything, right? And the door's open, so why don't we just trust him and walk through it? Why don't we just see what God is going to do? And stop worrying about budgets and church size or whatever. Chuck Swindoll said this in his commentary. A church's vision should not be determined by the size of its congregation or the limitations of its location or the restrictions of its budget. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. How much power does God have? Limitless. And so we just need to take steps of faith. And here's my challenge to you personally and individually in your own life. Will you take steps of faith with us? Will you participate? Will you begin to tithe if you're not tithing? Will you trust God with the first fruits of all the increase that he provides to you? Will you put him first in your finances? Will you, instead of just coming to church once a month and sitting in a pew, will you begin to get into the bottom box, as we said two weeks ago, the core group, and connect, serve, grow, and give? Will you go on this journey with us as he opens the door and calls us to take steps of faith? Look at verse nine. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Did you notice Jesus was not politically correct. He just said it like it was. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn, I love this, they will learn that I have loved you. Aren't you glad Jesus loves you? And so Jesus said in verse nine, the synagogue of Satan, okay, so man, how do you interpret that? Well, when the plain, sex make, plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense lest you get nonsense. Remember Don Stewart a few years, weeks ago? And so uh, what's the plain sense? Well, obviously there was a local synagogue in ancient Philadelphia, and there must have been some, not all, Jesus is not calling every synagogue of Satan, a synagogue of Satan, by the way. But in that particular time, AD 95, there must have been a synagogue in Philadelphia and some of the leaders must have gotten upset when some of their friends and family members, Jewish friends and family members, heard the gospel that Yeshua is the true Messiah and they began to attend the church of Philadelphia. So these guys, who are unbelieving Jews, by the way, the Jews have the right God, Yahweh, the only God. It's just that most of them reject that Yeshua is God's son and the Messiah. By the way, real quick, pray for Israel. Um, obviously, being right there, I heard uh, through our guide that 
there's eight and a half million people, not counting the, un, the, the disputed areas of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, eight and a half million people in Israel, and yet only 20,000 recognize Yeshua as Messiah. So sad. Pray for them. They have the right God, the God of the Bible. But they need Jesus and his sacrifice to have their sins forgiven. And so there were some unbelieving Jews in the synagogue that were mad, and so they began to make plans, they began to scheme, they began to persecute the church of Philadelphia. And so Jesus calls that particular synagogue a synagogue of Satan. If you remember, Jesus had the same problem with the church of Smyrna, um, well, the synagogue in Smyrna um, in Revelation 2.9. Same thing going on there. And so the Lord sees the pain of these persecuted believers in Philadelphia, and he wants to encourage them. And so he says in the second half of verse nine, behold, I will make them, those unbelieving Jews that are harassing you, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And so one day, on, at judgment day, when every wrong is made right, when those persecuted believers from the church of Philadelphia are standing there at judgment day, they're gonna look and they're gonna see some of these leaders from this local synagogue who harassed and persecuted them and they're gonna fall down before their feet and these unbelieving Jews, at that time, they're gonna be believers and they're gonna know that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah and that Yeshua loves his church. That's what the Lord is saying in verse nine. And so now in verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you, what's the next word? From, please everybody say from. That's so important. From the hour of trial that is coming on what? The whole world. Try those who dwell on the earth. And so here we see that one day a catastrophic event is gonna occur that's gonna impact the entire world's population. Jesus called it the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so how do you interpret that? Well, when you look back at history, here's what you find. Never in history has there been such an enormous cataclysmic event that it's affected the entire world's population? Big stuff has happened throughout history that has affected cities and nations, but nothing so big that it's impacted the entire world. And so this has not happened yet. Verse 10 is a prophecy from the Lord. And so what is the hour of trial? If you're taking notes, it's the tribulation period called the 70th week of Daniel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the last seven years of history as we know it. It's in Revelation 6 through 19, okay? So everybody, please look at me. Remember the simple outline of Revelation. Chapter one, the resurrected Christ reveals himself to the apostle John. Chapters two and three is where we are now. The seven letters to the seven churches. We're on number six, next week is number seven. Then we will go to chapters four and five. Okay, so I believe in chapter four, verses one through three, as John is snatched up, that's a picture of the rapture of the church. 
And so in verse chapters four and five, you have the church in heaven. Then you get to six through 19. Guess what? In those chapters, six through 19, that describe the hour of trial that's coming upon the old earth, the word church is not there. Wonder why. Verse 20, the millennial reign of the son of David on planet earth. And then verses, uh, chapters 21 and chapter 22 is the new heavens and the new earth. And so in Revelation 6 through 19, we're gonna see seals being opened and trumpets being blown and bowls of wrath being poured out. Those are cataclysmic events that are gonna come upon the whole world as God pours his wrath out, listen to this, on people who he gave a chance to be saved. And yet they rebelled against him. And there may be some people here today and you're still in your heart rebelling against God. And you're still refusing to believe that this book is true. And you're refusing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and you have not received him as your Savior and Lord. You are on dangerous ground because what God is finally gonna do when he gets to the hour of trial is he's going to open the seals and blow the trumpets and pour out the bowls and his wrath is going to be poured out on the entire world. Why? To evict the rebels off of his planet so that when his kingdom comes, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and Jesus will reign on this earth. And so, the question is, Will true believers go through this hour of trial that culminates in the second coming of Jesus? I don't believe we will. Why? I got lots of reasons which I'll share in the weeks ahead, but in this verse, verse 10, I base my belief on the Greek preposition from. You see that? And so if you're taking notes, here's your next point. The Church of Philadelphia is a picture of true believers who will be kept from the tribulation. How many of you guys believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of scriptures? Do you really believe this is God's word? Do you believe every word in the original manuscripts is God's word? Every word, even prepositions, okay? And so what about this preposition from? I'm gonna quote now from John MacArthur I'm gonna give him credit for his scholarly work, but please listen. If you're with me, say amen here. Okay, listen. Those who argue that the church will go through the tribulation hold that this phrase, keep from, means preservation through the time of judgment. They believe the church will go through the tribulation judgments and that God will preserve the church in the midst of those judgments. But that view is unlikely, both on linguistic and biblical grounds. The basic meaning of the preposition from, or in the Greek, ek, E-K, means out from or away from. If the Lord intended to convey that the church would be preserved in the midst of the tribulation, a different Greek preposition meaning in or through, through is dia, D-I-A in the Greek, would have been more appropriate. And so Jesus did not say to this church of Philadelphia that pictures true believers for the last 2,000 years. He did not say, I will keep you as you dia, go through the tribulation. No, he said, I'm gonna keep you ek. I'm gonna keep you away from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Why? 
because 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you a question. Why in the world would God ever pour his wrath on his church when he already poured his wrath on his son who absorbed God's wrath so we would not have to? Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to its last drop. Why? So you and I would never have to worry about experiencing God's wrath. So you and I would never have to worry about waking up one day in hell where we'll spend forever and ever. No. God says, no. You may experience my discipline. You may experience my chastisement as children and sons and daughters, but you will never experience my wrath. And so I'm going to keep you from that time. And by the way, you walk out of your house today here in America where we live the good life and you see your trimmed yards and your sidewalks and your curbs and your streets and your flowers. Let me tell you something. It's not always going to look like that. In this period of time that Jesus is talking about, the hour of trial, if you're here and you walk out of your house, it's going to be a war zone. Ever been to Haiti? Some of the slums in Haiti? Imagine worse than that. Why? Because man hardens his heart against the Lord, his creator, and the Lord, his savior. And so I believe before the wrath falls, true believers will be caught up in the rapture. And we'll talk a lot more about that as we make our way through an hour of the last verses, 11 through 13. Please stay with me all the way to the end because there's some great principles here and promises. And so verse 11, he says, I... He said this in 8095 to the church of Philadelphia. I am coming soon. And you may say, well, it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come. Well, you gotta understand the word soon. It means quickly. In other words, when I come, I'm coming fast. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, I just gotta emphasize that. He's talking to faithful Christians here, and he's telling them, and I believe that's most of us in this congregation today, he's telling you guys, hold fast what you have, so that no one steals your crown. And so those of you who are right now, you're in a relationship with Jesus, you're walking with Jesus, guess what? You have an adversary. And he's making plans against you and your family and your marriage and your kids. And he's gonna try his dead level best to knock you off course so that you're no longer following the Lord. Don't let that happen because if you don't hold fast what you have, you're gonna lose your crown. I didn't say you're gonna lose your salvation. That's done through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're gonna lose your reward if you don't keep following the Lord until your last breath. How many of you guys want to be lifelong followers of Jesus Christ? Do you really want to? Every single person in this place should be putting your hands together right now. If you really want to be a lifelong follower of Christ, let them know right now. Put your hands together. Let them know. So keep that attitude. 
Why? Because I don't want, as your pastor, to be standing at the judgment seat of Christ, and there you are, and you walk up, and you put it all in, and it's wood, hay, stubble. And the Lord says, well, welcome home, child, but I don't have any crown for you. I don't want to see you weep. You say, I thought there was no tears in heaven. That's later, the new heavens and new earth. I don't want to see you lose your reward. Ladies and gentlemen, this life, it's a vapor. You're here today, gone tomorrow. The next life is forever and ever and ever and ever. A billion years from now, what you do, what you wear, what position you have, your rewards in that billions and billions and billions of years is based on this little life. Live for the Lord. Give him your all. Don't get sidetracked by the world. And so in these last verses, there's four promises that Jesus makes to overcomers. And here they are, it's your last point. He said, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar. Okay, you remember ancient Philadelphia built on a geological fault line? And so whenever there was an earthquake, they ran out, they ran out of their house. Well, pillars are just the opposite of that. Pillars are here to stay, right? Pillars speak of permanence and security. And so the Lord says, hey, I'll make you a pillar. You'll never leave the house of my father. And then number two, as a pillar, I'm gonna write three things on you. Promise two, three, and four. He says, I will write, write on him the name of my God. Can you imagine? You and I are like pillars, and we overcome, and we stand before the Lord, and he writes on us the name of God. What's the name of God? Yahweh. And some of you got right now are thinking, man, the very name of God is gonna be written on me? No way. And I say, Yahweh. <laughs> yes. You're a pillar, Yahweh. And not only that, number three, I will write on him the name of the city of my God. What's the name of the city of God? The New Jerusalem. It's our address forever and ever and ever. And not only that, I will write on him my own new name. All right, so what is that? From Jeremiah 23, verses five and six, Jesus' new name in the kingdom age will be the Lord, our righteousness. And so there we are, pillars, Yahweh, New Jerusalem, and the Lord, our righteousness. If, everybody please say if, if we overcome. Okay, so how in the world can somebody overcome? I've said it and said it, 1 John 5, 4, please listen to God's word. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You gotta be born again. Have you been born again? You see, when you're born again, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, and now the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you. And what is that power if you submit to the Holy Spirit? What does that power do? It helps you live the victorious Christian life. Not the perfect life, but the victorious Christian life. Have you been born again? How do you become born again? Jesus told a religious leader in Israel, 
Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. He said that to a religious guy. You gotta be born again. And so how, well, first of all, what is the new birth? The new birth, you've been born physically? Yeah, we're all here, right, in our physical bodies. It's spiritual birth. How does that occur? It occurs when we stop trusting ourselves to save ourselves through good works, when we stop doubting the Bible and stop doubting what the Lord promises in his word, and we simply accept that what Jesus did on Calvary's cross was for you and you and you and you and all of you, that he paid for your sin and mine. He died in our place. And then he rose again the third day. And when you and I turn from our sins the best way we know how and we receive Jesus as the only way, his spirit comes in and gives a spiritual birth. Has that happened to you? Maybe you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior and Lord. Today's the day. This life's a vapor. Make that choice. We always have a choice. Maybe you're here today and you've wandered away from the Lord and you're in jeopardy of losing your crown, your reward. The Lord's saying, come back. Begin to follow me again. Recommit your life to me. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.